Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Adam Roberts. I was a professor of international relations here. I've now got the bed of nails of being uh, president of the British Academy, and my main job this afternoon is twofold. First of all, to test the sound system to see if it's working. Can, can you hear me if you can raise a hand at the back? Yes, I'm gathering that's okay. Sometimes I say, if you can't hear me, please raise a hand, but that doesn't work. Um, and my other job is to uh, say something about Senator J. William Fulbright, uh, in whose honor this event is, and this is the beginning of uh, a longer term project in connection with Senator uh, Fulbright. Um, he was, as I'm sure you all know, a particularly distinguished, effective, and independent-minded chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Indeed, he had the distinction of holding the office of chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee longer than anybody else. And um, that must have been some consolation for his other distinction, which was he was the longest running ever junior senator for a state who never became the senior senator. But I think he was too great a man to worry uh, about uh, details like that. And he also wrote extensively about international relations. Uh, he wrote a book, Prospects for the West, in 1963, The Arrogance of Power, perhaps his most famous book, not only because of its uh, arresting title, but also because it was a well-thought-out critique of the Vietnam War policy at a time when few in Washington were criticizing it as clearly as he was. He also wrote The Crippled Giant about the United States and The Price of Empire that last in 1989. He had a very strong connection with Oxford. As he was later to put it in a lecture he gave in 1975, 50 years after he'd arrived in Oxford as a student, he arrived as a new Rhodes Scholar in Oxford from the Ozark Mountains of Northern Arkansas, I arrived at Pembroke College, 20 years of age, unsophisticated, untraveled, and untutored. Um, since this is a day of solidarity with Senator Fulbright, um, I'd love it if any of you who consider yourselves unsophisticated, untraveled, and untutored in solidarity with him to uh, raise your hands. Um, and he began what he said, he later described as the three most significant, rewarding, and delightful years of my life, um, in which there was a major intellectual input from his tutor in modern history, R.B. McCallum uh, of Pembroke uh, College. Uh, and he, as he later put it, my experiences in Oxford were clearly the major influence in determining my approach to public or political matters and especially to international affairs. What was that influence exactly? He said there's little doubt that the prestige of Oxford and Pembroke contributed decisively to my being elected to the pre as president of the University of Arkansas at the age of 34, and later to my being elected to Congress and then to the Senate of the United States. As a freshman senator, it's unlikely that I would have initiated the movement in Congress for the United Nations, 
which he did in 1942, um, in legislation, which subsequently was followed by the creation of the UN, and subsequently, of course, he sponsored the international exchange of students and academics that led to what has been called the biggest movement of academics in Europe since the fall of Constantinople. And, of course, he also set up the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. And he said, none of this would have happened without my experience uh, of Oxford. Here at Oxford, our strong belief is that a Fulbright commemoration should be something significant and substantial, given his special links with Oxford and the admiration that so many of us have for his legacy. We're very sorry that his, his widow, Harriet Fulbright, who has held many important public posts and is president of the William and Harriet Fulbright Center, is unable to be with us today. But please give warm thanks to her for being with us in spirit and to all who have made this possible, especially Brian Wilson, who has pumped around the entire project of, to commemorate Fulbright at Oxford, and even more especially to Anne-Marie Slaughter, from whom we will be hearing in a moment after Andrew Hurrell has introduced her. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Adam. Um, my name is Andrew Hurrell. I teach international relations here. And it's an enormous pleasure to welcome Anne-Marie Slaughter, to welcome her back to Oxford. Um, international relations feeds off borders and boundaries. In many ways, it's parasitic on the existence of borders and boundaries, both in the world, but also within academia. And I think, as I was sort of thinking and looking and thinking about Anne-Marie's career, it struck me, perhaps most of all, that she's been an inveterate and indefatigable crosser of borders. And let me just mention a few of them. First, within academia, and particularly between international law and international relations. For those outside academia, this no doubt sounds a sort of trifling matter. Um, but for those within, the Berlin Wall-like division between fields is really a remarkable feature. Um, Anne-Marie was a graduate student here in international relations, writing a doctoral dissertation on the German question. Subsequently, she pursued an extremely distinguished career within international law at Chicago and Harvard, and as, a, as president of the American Society of International Law. Even more importantly, her academic contributions have very often spoke to the need to cross borders between international law and international relations. Her work on how courts work in Europe, her work on the phenomenon of legalization in world politics, her work on the new world order and the importance of understanding networks, trans-border, trans-boundary, trans-governmental networks by which so much of the substance of global politics and global governance takes place. So a crosser of academic borders. Second, a crosser, someone who has worked between being an academic and helping to lead and run academia. So not just her own work as an academic, but her role particularly as the Dean of the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton, playing a consistently important role as an orchestrator and as a motivator of people and ideas. Just one example out of many but would be her work on the Princeton Project on National Security. And that leads to the third 
bridge, border crossing, if you like, between academia and public policy. And Marie Slaughter has played a long-standing role as a public intellectual, which brings with it, of course, visibility, commitment, but also, obviously, at times, debate and controversy. She has more recently uh, just left uh, from having worked as Director of Policy Planning of the U.S. State Department, uh, playing a major role across a number of initiatives, but not least the first quadrennial diplomacy and development review, the title of which, Leading Through Civilian Power, again, I think speaks to important interests uh, that Professor Slaughter has. And finally, a final set of borders, uh, which her work in theory and practice has crossed, is between the world of states and the broader world of societies. This is an old division and distinction in international relations, but one that has become ever more important. So on the one hand, we talk about shifting power between and among states. Is the United States losing out to China? Is there a shift and a transition of power underway? But on the other hand, we also talk, or we should talk, very much about a broader diffusion of power, fueled by globalization, by technology, by new forms of social and political mobilization. And many of the great dilemmas, both of global order and of American foreign policy, hinge precisely on the relationship between these two forms of power shift. And Anne-Marie Slaughter's work has probed and pressed this relationship from an authentically American liberal position. Liberal both in terms of the mode of analysis and liberal in terms of the motivating values. So she's got us to focus much harder on the role of networks and of players within society and on across society, on across society. but on the other, of course, she has had to think both in theory and practice about what this all means for the practical foreign policy of what is still the most powerful and important state in the world, for its conception of interests and values, and for the range of both morally justifiable and politically viable foreign policy options. So it's a tremendous pleasure that I ask Anne-Marie to deliver the inaugural Fulbright Lecture in International Relations on the Turn American Foreign Policy 2009 to 2011. Thank you. Senator Fulbright reached the height of his influence on American foreign policy. Uh, as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee from 1959 to 1974. That is a period in American history, in global history, uh, in which the dominant paradigm of how we think about international relations and how we practice foreign policy was shaped. Indeed, there are two events in particular that I would like to start by focusing on that define the core elements of that traditional paradigm. Uh, first, the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, in 1962, and second, the conclusion of the limited test ban treaty in 1963. I returned to Princeton from the State Department in uh, late January uh, this year and found myself in front of a classroom five days later. Princeton had the view that I should still earn my living uh, and I immediately had a seminar of very talented uh, Princeton seniors studying national security. We 
looked at lots of different reports and documents, and uh, all Princeton seniors write a thesis, and in early April, their thesis was due on Tuesday, and my seminar was on Wednesday, and I'm not so old a professor that I do not remember that the day after you have handed in your thesis, you do not do any reading at all. So I uh, assigned a movie for the next day and informed my students that their principal job was to stay awake uh, for the three hours of the seminar, because of course the lights went down. And to help them stay awake, I chose the movie 13 Days. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but it is a quite historically accurate rendering of the Cuban Missile Crisis, of the 13 days during which uh, Adults everywhere, people everywhere, thought we really were on the edge of nuclear war. We were on the edge of nuclear war. Uh, and the, the movie focuses on the executive committee, the XCOM, the men, uh, who uh, essentially helped, together with their counterparts in the Soviet Union, decide uh, whether we were going to go to war or not. And of course, in the end, we, we did pull back. They didn't fall asleep. Uh, indeed, at the end of that movie, you exhale with the relief uh, that was felt uh, by humans everywhere at that period. But after uh, the movie, I said, so what, aside from the fact that people drank and smoked pretty much continuously, and there were no women uh, in positions other than secretary and supportive wife uh, in any policy position, other than those differences, what else did you notice? And these are Princeton seniors, they are all 21 or 22 years old. And the result, the, the answers were instructive, uh, and I will start there in defining what I choose to call the dominant foreign policy uh, paradigm uh, that has dominated us from, from that time to this. Uh, so the first thing they said was, there were only two states in the world. And indeed, you watch that movie, and of course it is stylized, but it is the United States and the Soviet Union. There is no other state really even mentioned. I think NATO is mentioned once. The Organization of American States is mentioned once. There's an extraordinary moment when Mac Bundy, the national security advisor, says to the president, well, China invaded India today, but you really don't want to hear about that. I think I could sit down and you would recognize the differences between the world of 1962 and the world of today. China invaded India, but you don't want to hear about that. Today we would want to hear about that. Uh, so a very limited number of states. Of course, there were more than two states that mattered in the world, but fundamentally it was a world where at best five to seven states were the principal actors in international relations, and those five to seven very much dominated by the Soviet Union uh, and the United States. That is equally true of the limited test ban treaty, which was negotiated a year later, of course, very much uh, as a result of the, the narrow escape of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And again, the limited test ban treaty is negotiated by the United States and the Soviet Union. To this day, France and China have still not signed it, uh, which gives you a sense of how critical it was that those two states reach a cooperative agreement and otherwise uh, it was uh, other states really uh, did not did not matter to the core parts of international relations 
So that's the first element of this paradigm, a limited number of states in the world. When we think about international relations, it is the relations of a limited number of states. The second thing that comes through very powerfully uh, is that when we talk about states, we mean governments. We are referring, in the, again, if you think about the Cuban Missile Crisis or the Test Ban Treaty, the actors are governments. There, is no, uh, there are no other uh, transnational actors, social actors, nothing. It is governments, governments, uh, as I said, effectively run by statesmen in international relations who engage with one another. So a limited number of, of actors, and those actors are governments. Third, they are extremely separate. Uh, indeed, only, again, by today's standards is that fully appreciated. There was no direct communication between the White House and the Kremlin. If you will recall, the uh, hotline, for those of you who will recall, there are some of you for whom this is, I might as well be talking about ancient Greece, but for those of you who will recall, the, the hotline was set up after the Cuban Missile Crisis. So the only communication between the United States government and the uh, Soviet government uh, was through ambassadors. It might as well have been in the 19th century pre-cable, uh, in, the, in, the, in a, the, the very thin strands of connection uh, between governments. So separation uh, is, again, the, 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 these governments operate very separately from one another. And the fourth element of this paradigm is that conflict is the basic presumption of international relations. Uh, that obviously, this was the Cold War, this is the United States and the Soviet Union, but the starting point is to assume conflictual relations. Now, even amid conflict, and this is why I choose the limited test ban treaty at the same time, uh, there were, of course, common interests. We discovered during the Cuban Missile Crisis, we really did have a common interest in not blowing the, the world up, which was good for the rest of us. Uh, so in that context, you can have limited cooperation. And the, the limited test ban treaty is a perfect example. There was a limited common interest, and you could achieve it through patient negotiation in agreeing that you were going to limit the, the amount of testing, thereby limiting the, deploy, the, the development of new weapon systems, thereby reducing uh, the likelihood of nuclear war. So there again, a conflict with limited uh, cooperation. And fifth and finally, uh, if you'll recall, I don't think it's apocryphal, uh, Dean Rusk, at the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis, when it's all over, he, he looks when they've got the news that, in fact, the, the Russians are, are going to uh, pull out the missiles and the crisis is, is winding down. He says, we were eyeball to eyeball and the other guy just blinked. Now, the fifth dimension of this paradigm is that it is a paradigm of foreign policy or international relations that is best modeled by game theory. Uh, and indeed, that's the game of chicken. You do not need to be a, a formal theorist of any kind to understand the basic principle of two states heading directly at each other, like two drivers, uh, and somebody gets off the road or, or blinks uh, and uh, the other prevails. The limited test ban treaty is the game of a prisoner's dilemma, uh, where fundamentally there is a common interest, but each actor has the incentive to defect, to cheat. We would be far happier if we had all the weapons and they had none. However, over time, uh, through a, an iterated game, a, uh, there is the ability to achieve a limited cooperation. And, 
as many of the people in this room have known and studied, uh, really uh, Thomas Schelling's The Strategy of Conflict, and note the presumption of conflicts, uh, provided the analytical framework for analyses of relations between governments of a limited number of states who presumed separation and conflict. So that is the dominant paradigm of international relations. It is still the dominant paradigm that is taught uh, in most uh, undergraduate international relations classes. When I say dominant, I mean that's where you start. Uh, and then you might move to other uh, actors. Indeed, one of the best ways to understand just how dominant this paradigm is, as someone said to me recently at a, a conference on new media and social media, uh, he said, you know, the term non-state actors is equivalent to calling an automobile a horseless carriage. And indeed, I predict that in 10 years or 20 years we will have a different term and we will think that non-state actor is as silly as thinking about an automobile as a horseless carriage. It is, that's what I mean when I say it's the starting point. It is the dominant paradigm. Now I want to move you to the forward, first uh, to 9-11 and then to today with the Arab Spring, uh, which I think together create two bookends uh, that define the emergence of a new and complementary paradigm. I will emphasize this repeatedly. This is not a paradigm that replaces the old one. It expands it. But so start with 9-11. Well, the, the most frightening feature of 9-11 uh, for those of us who were on the phone and wondering what to do with respect to our children as it was happening. You know, where did you get them home from school? Where did you go? Did you leave town? I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the time. Was that you had no idea who was on the other side. There was a potentially infinite number of actors. We didn't even know, of course, initially that it was Al-Qaeda. It could have been a coordinated terrorist attack by domestic groups and international groups. We, had, we obviously uh, have domestic terrorism as well. You didn't know how many attacks there were going to be. There was one on the financial center. There was one on the Pentagon. There was one uh, aimed at uh, Congress. I thought to myself, well, if there's one on the academic uh, and a principal academic center from Princeton, I don't think it's the academic center. Center, but a, an academic center uh, in the uh, United States. Cambridge, Massachusetts is really not a good place to be. Uh, so, but this sense of a potentially infinite, not really infinite, but very large number of actors is the absolute opposite of a limited number of states. Uh, and that, of course, uh, has, it continues if you uh, think about 9-11 on the one hand uh, and the Arab Spring on another, you see in both cases you have a very large number of non-state actors uh, who on the one hand were acting very negatively in the Arab Spring, they're acting very positively, but in neither case are they a limited number of governments. The second thing to say is that these are social actors. And Andy actually, oh. <laughs> no. 
Thank you. Uh, Andy actually alluded to this in his introduction. These are, these are not, this is no longer a world just of governments, although governments continue to play a very important role. They are, a, they, these are actors embedded in society. One way to think about this difference is that if the world of the Cuban Missile Crisis was the world of billiard balls, this is Arnold Wolfer's famous uh, image of states intersecting in the international realm of billiard balls, that image has given way to a vision of governments, not, not uh, uh, synonymous with states, but governments who are now embedded in an ever denser web of social relations. I don't have quite the biological metaphor that takes the place of billiard balls. I've been looking for it for many years. But this image of, of uh, almost like hubs of governments that are embedded in these very dense web of social uh, relations. Indeed, I suggest, and I think you may hear something like this in the Pres President Obama's speech uh, uh, tomorrow on the Middle East, one way of thinking about 9-11 and the Arab Spring is that they are two very different responses to the same set of social conditions, to conditions of humiliation, of oppression, of the denial of opportunity uh, and connection uh, to, to others. Uh, and one is a very negative, uh, a violent reaction uh, that seeks motivation and inspiration in an image of returning to the 15th century, but at least provides an ideology, provides a kind of advancement, uh, provides a way out of existing social conditions. And the other, uh, to those of us in liberal democracies, is a far more positive response, but that again is responding to humiliation, oppression, denial of opportunity, denial of the life that other Others around the world have and that can so clearly be seen, but a reaction of social actors. So if we say it's a, it's a much larger number of actors and they are actors in society as well as governments, then the third dimension of this emerging paradigm is that they are deeply, deeply interconnected. Indeed, I would venture that that is in some ways the most important shift that I have lived through, uh, through my students, that in the world of the Cold War, in the world of the MPhil class of which Andy Hurl and I were both a class, uh, both a part, we start from separation. We start from separation as states who then engage with other states, but we start as separation in terms of individuals. Whether you think about uh, economics, uh, Western economics or Marxism, you can be an alienated individual, you can be an entrepreneurial individual, but you start from separation and you move to connection. I will venture that my students start from connection and only then move to separation that their world starts from being so deeply interconnected that of course they have a sense of themselves as individuals, but they define themselves as individuals in relations to others in a way that my generation uh, did not. You don't have to go quite that far, but I will point out that clearly the depth of interconnection among these social actors is one of the, the biggest uh, markers of our time. So, uh, if it, it's a, a much larger number of social actors who are deeply interconnected, uh, the fourth dimension is that instead of conflict or limited cooperation, this paradigm is marked by co mass collaboration. Collaboration is different than cooperation. Cooperation, two people, two entities have common interests. They 
coordinate their behavior, they act uh, in, a, in an agreed manner to accomplish a common goal. Mass collaboration is something where many, many, many actors act together, although not in a directed or controlled way, and something larger emerges from the sum of the parts. Think of Wikipedia. This is the most obvious example, where through the action of many, many individuals that is not coordinated other than the basic rules that Wikipedia provides, we have a body of knowledge that certainly to my children uh, is far more authoritative than the Encyclopedia Britannica was to me, and even for me is one of the first places I look, although not the last. Um, but this, and indeed, uh, the, I think the most interesting work uh, in many different fields is around the phenomenon of mass collaboration, whether that's business or science or, I hope, international relations. So from conflict and limited cooperation to collaboration. And fifth, and obviously clearly relatedly, if the way of framing and analyzing uh, the world of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Limited Test Ban Treaty was game theory. The framework uh, for analyzing and resolving problems in the world of 9-11 and the Arab Spring is complexity theory and network theory. Uh, now here, I'm going to just say right now, no one is allowed to ask me any questions on the details of either. Uh, I, am, I will be spending uh, certainly the summer and probably the, the uh, next few years immersing myself in these details. It's very complicated. However, one way of thinking about it, uh, the, uh, complexity theory is, again, the study of phenomena that emerge from a collection of interacting objects. So again, many, many, many agents uh, in, in interacting in many different ways, and then the phenomena that emerge are larger than the sum of the parts. You can think about traffic jams, you can think about market crises, you can think about Wikipedia, uh, but, it, but that's the broader area of complexity theory. Within that, and it is a subset, Network theory focuses specifically on how different agents are linked together, the structure of different networks. And you can think about this either as a hub and a spokes, where the hub is linked to all the different spokes. That's one form of a network. But you can also think of the way a military brigade is organized in groups of smaller divisions, which are then uh, all the way down to a platoon. That's another form of a network, and there are many others. So thinking about networks, thinking about how different actors are, are connected and the nature of their relations will be absolutely essential to thinking about how we diagnose and solve the problems uh, of this paradigm alongside the more traditional paradigm uh, which continues. So, this finally brings me to the subject of my lecture, and you might have been wondering, when is she going to get to the turn in American foreign policy? I am, uh, now. Uh, but I again just want, want you to keep uh, these two paradigms in mind, and keep in mind what I said. They are not 
alts, alt, they are, one does not replace the other. The world of the Cuban Missile Crisis is very much with us. Having spent two years in the State Department, I can assure you we spent a great deal of time thinking about relations with Iran and North Korea, or for that matter, Honduras. I mean, when there was a coup in Honduras, we spent an enormous amount of time thinking about how we were going to apply pressure uh, to that government to change the outcome, how to work with the Organization of American States. It hardly had the same consequences for our security as the Cuban Missile Crisis, but it is still classic diplomacy. So that world of limited states in which there are governments uh, in which they, the, the we are, are not deeply connected or we do, not, uh, we do not act based on those connections in which relations are still quite conflictual and in which game theory applies, still very much there. It now exists alongside this world of governments and societies and connection uh, and collaboration and network theory and complexity theory. So it just makes things more complicated. In the last two years, in the United States, we have turned in the conception and the practice of foreign policy from a world of a limited number of states to a world of governments and societies. We now formulate our foreign policy in those terms. And what we have begun and the roots are deeper than the Obama administration, but I will contend that the, the actual turn has taken place in the last two years. What we have begun will only continue and deepen over the decades uh, to come. Let me give you a very concrete example, lest you think that these are the musings of an academic who went to Washington and tried to make sense of it. Uh, as I said when I uh, stepped down from my position, Secretary Clinton taught me more than I taught her, uh, and that was quite remarkable uh, given she was relatively new to the world of foreign policy, and uh, I have been doing it all my life in some very fancy institutions. But from her perception from the beginning, she said, diplomacy in the 21st century is diplomacy between governments, and of course, thus it remains, but it is also diplomacy between governments and societies, and diplomacy between societies and societies. And that is the turn from government to government, still doing it, still very important, but in addition, government to society, and society to society. And I'd like to spend my remaining time making that as concrete as possible and giving you a full sense of what it means to think about and practice foreign policy in a world of governments uh, and societies. So there are uh, three major uh, implications of that approach. The first, the first is the rise of development as an equal pillar of our civilian foreign policy, an equal pillar to diplomacy in our civilian foreign policy. When Secretary Clinton testified before the Senate, when she was named uh, to be Secretary of State, she said, uh, my goal uh, and the goal of this administration will be to elevate development as an equal pillar of civilian foreign policy and as one of the three Ds. So the two civilian elements, diplomacy and development, and defense uh, as the military uh, dimension. 
The Obama administration uh, acted on that pledge, uh, first by issuing the first policy on global development since Senator Kennedy established USAID in 1961. Uh, the United States has not had a formal development policy since then. Uh, the Obama administration spent a year and a half with a large number of agencies, uh, almost 20, focusing on what our policy should be and how it should be uh, implemented. I can say in this hall, in many ways, we were following Britain's lead. Uh, the growth of DFID, the impact of DFID globally uh, has been very much remarked uh, in Washington. And for those of us who are very aware of the critical importance of development for our foreign policy, we realized uh, we had a very uh, clear uh, uh, legacy uh, or reputation to rebuild uh, in light of, of how far DFID uh, has been ahead of us. Uh, so this, the, the policy uh, in the global development policy, then uh, the project that I led, the Quadrennial Diplomacy and Development Review, which will be quadrennial, its significance is that it forces state and USAID to work together on a major strategic review every four years, which sets goals that then defines budgets. That's the important part because, of course, we can conduct reviews forever and they will be irrelevant, but where they are directly connected to the money, people pay attention, and state and USAID now will conduct a review like this every four years, and it will then determine uh, the funding uh, for both. Further, a major commitment to rebuild USAID, even in the current funding environment, although we have certainly not done as well as in Britain, USAID is being rebuilt and various powers that were taken away from it uh, during not just the Bush administration but the, uh, the Bill Clinton administration are being restored. And at every turn, we are focusing not only on development uh, on the ground but also development diplomacy which means that when Secretary Clinton or President Obama or Deputy Secretaries travel to foreign countries and have their many meetings with their counterparts, they speak about polio in Nigeria or HIV AIDS in South Africa uh, or uh, the education uh, and uh, internet uh, freedom in India or China. They elevate issues of development to issues of high politics, to issues of bilateral and multilateral uh, diplomacy. So the first is the rise of development. If you think of the world as governments and societies, then that's just obvious. Diplomacy, the core diplomacy, is still government-to-government -government relations, but if you're focused on societies and the role of societies in addressing problems from global pandemics to climate change to uh, violent extremism to the stability of the global economy to resource scarcity, and I could go on, development is central to all of those. None of those can be addressed, no matter how effective the international agreement we might reach. It must be diplomacy and development together. The second dimension of government to society and society to society diplomacy uh, has been very deliberate programs in the State Department focused on specific segments of society. Now, here, this seems so obvious once you change the lens of how you think about foreign policy. But if you're thinking about a world only of governments, you don't think about women. You don't think about men either. You just think about governments and whoever is populating that government, and it's still mostly men, but nevertheless, that's who you focus on. The minute you think about societies, 
you recognize the near half of the population, it should be the majority of the global population, but it is not because of gender side. Uh, the number of the millions and millions and millions of women who are killed as infants mean that actually, although it should be 106 women to every 100 men, uh, it's actually, uh, women are a minority of the global population. Nevertheless, they are a very large number. And of course, you would focus on empowering women, on diplomacy uh, that focuses on women and on men, because we can't empower women without focusing on men at the same time, as a key part of what you do in the State Department. And so we have done. Uh, indeed, Secretary Clinton has probably has invested as much in that issue as any other. But similarly, we focus on youth. And again, if you think of a world of governments to governments, why would you focus on youth? You don't focus on different parts of society. But the minute you focus on society, we knew, I have many papers uh, out of my shop and many others, that 60% of the Middle East is under 30. We knew that. We knew some, that was going to have a major impact on politics in that region. We didn't know exactly when. And frankly, we didn't know it uh, and act on it deeply enough and quickly enough to make much difference for what is happening now. But that will no longer be true. Uh, we, have, we are now formulating a youth strategy. Indeed, we started as soon as Secretary Clinton came in, formulating a youth strategy, formulating programs, thinking about how we engage, our our, engage youth in different parts of, of uh, youth culture uh, through our diplomacy. But similarly, focusing on different segments of society like entrepreneurs, health diplomacy, science diplomacy, all the different ways in which you can engage different uh, sectors of society. Um, this, you might say, well, we've always done this. That's just public diplomacy. That's what the public diplomacy people do. But public diplomacy traditionally defined was about communication. It was not about building relations with different segments of society. It was about communicating, I don't even want to say to them, I mean, or with them, I would say communicating at them. Uh, it was about messaging, it was about making sure that we got uh, our views of who we were as a country and what we stood for out. This is classic diplomacy, which is about building relationships, and it's participatory. So even in our public diplomacy, it is much more about a participatory dialogue uh, and about, again, building relations through programs that engage different segments uh, of society. So the um, government society diplomacy has changed uh, who we think about, how we organize the State Department, where we spend our money, uh, and where we focus, again, in addition to focusing on governments. The third major uh, change is society-to-society -society diplomacy that is facilitated uh, by government. Uh, and here again, uh, we focus on the tremendous interconnections among social actors. We start from the premise that we cannot possibly solve many of the problems I just listed without the participation of the full spectrum of society. And when I say society, I mean economic actors as well. I mean both the private sector and the civic sector. There is no chance of addressing climate change or global pandemics or resource scarcity, or even I would submit the, the spread of violent extremism, if you think about it in its fullest capacity, without engaging corporations, NGOs, foundations, universities, the full spectrum of society. No government, no matter how powerful, has the resources or the, or the, the uh, personnel to possibly do what, what is ultimately required. So what then is the go uh, 
role of government in facilitating society-to-society uh, -society connections? Well, we came up with some very uh, practical uh, approaches that may surprise you. One of the things that my uh, uh, office did together with the Office uh, of the, the Advisor for Innovation to Secretary Clinton was to run what we call tech dels technology delegations, in which the State Department led a group of uh, high-tech CEOs or, or uh, executives to different countries, to Russia, to Syria, to Iraq, to Brazil, uh, to meet with government officials, but to meet with business members of the business community, to meet with NGOs, figuring out how you could use technology to address a wide range of problems. That program resulted in Google deciding uh, to put the entire Iraqi art museum online. A small thing, but possibly one of my worst moments as an American citizen was watching American soldiers stand by while the Iraqi museum was looted. Those are the treasures of mankind. Uh, and to watch, uh, we had the ability to stop it and we didn't because things happen in a conflict. It's a small way of repaying, but at least putting those objects uh, online so that there is a virtual Iraqi museum as well as the restored actual museum uh, is something uh, in, in Iraqi-US relations. But then things at the other end of the spectrum, like developing applications for pregnant women in Russia and Africa that are effectively what to expect when you're expecting by a cell phone. The men in the audience, this may not mean that much to you, but for women, uh, most of us, uh, at least in my generation, who have had children. This has been our Bible to know week by week what you expect. Well, of course, to hundreds of millions of women around the world, they have no idea. So developing an application that any woman with a cell phone can see. This is the second week of your pregnancy or the fourth week of your pregnancy. This is what you should see. And if you're not seeing it, you need to go to a clinic. I led a tech del uh, to Sierra Leone and to uh, Liberia, uh, 12 women executives to focus on the problems of women in both those countries. Uh, and I will not go into all the details of the people we met and the uh, pledges uh, that we made. But again, we made connections between Google, between Twitter, between the Cherie Blair Foundation, and many people on the ground. And at that point, government's job is to step back and let those connections uh, work. Another way to do that uh, is to create an office for public-private partnerships in the State Department and to make it part of every diplomat's training as to what kinds of public-private partnerships you can set up and how you set them up. This is not easy for your average diplomat. They are not trained. They don't know people in the corporate sector, and the legal barriers to doing this are complicated. So the way you do it is to create an office and to create a handbook and to create documents that you can pull off the shelf as easily as you could if you were working in a corporate law firm so that as increasingly happens, when corporations contact you and say, we want to be part of solving health problems or education problems or engaged in, inter in internet freedom activities, we have a way to do that. Because ultimately, we're going to have to mobilize, again, as many social actors uh, as possible. And my final example is how uh, Dr. Rajiv Shah, the director of USAID, who came from the Gates Foundation, how he thinks about what USAID ought to be. So USAID, of course, used to be an, an agency with up to 20,000 uh, employees who were on the ground running programs in developing countries. That has uh, evolved in various ways. Now, increasingly, it is a place that passes through grants to private implementers. 
But his vision is that USAID must be a platform for connecting different members of the development enterprise. Because in the 10, 20, 30 years, uh, certainly of his time, uh, actually it's more like 10 or 15, he's only 36, but uh, in his time in, in, uh, in the development field, of course, there's an explosion of actors in development. There are foundations, there are corporations, uh, there are NGOs of all different kinds, there are universities. Think about the MIT Poverty Action Lab and the, the work that is done here in Oxford and many other universities. His vision is that USAID becomes a platform that identifies challenges, mobilizes actors in universities, research institutes, laboratories to help address those problems, and then connects the implementers in ways that allows them to divide labor, work efficiently with governments and on the ground, uh, and approach problems in a much more decentralized, horizontal way. That's a very different image of the role of government uh, than the USAID of President Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. So that's a brief description of the world not only of government-to-government -government diplomacy, but government-to-society diplomacy and society-to-society -society diplomacy. Another way I might describe the turn, and perhaps more succinctly, on the anniversary of Hedley Bull's death, which is today, and I had the great honor of studying with Hedley Bull uh, in the early 1980s, I think I memorized the anarchical society. One way to describe the turn is that we've moved from an, an anarchical society of states, which was very much uh, Hedley Bull's world, uh, to a networked society of individuals and groups in which governments are embedded. So again, a network society much, much broader uh, of individuals and groups, and governments are embedded uh, in that uh, society. Now that shift has been going on for a very long time. In many ways, we as academics, and certainly as foreign policy practitioners, are only catching up to the roots of this uh, much larger shift. And here, and in uh, this place, um, I think I can say that we are catching up uh, to what was deeply understood, has been deeply understood for a century or more, not least by Cecil Rhodes. We heard uh, that, uh, of course, uh, Senator Fulbright was a Rhodes Scholar and his time here had a huge impact uh, on his role as a politician uh, and as a statesman. And indeed, courtesy of the Warden of Rhodes House, I was uh, I can't say I was reminded last night because I don't think I ever knew it, but I discovered uh, that in the codicil uh, to Cecil Rhodes' will, uh, he added the German scholars, five scholars from Germany, and he said, the object is that an understanding between the three great powers will render war impossible uh, and educational relations make the strongest tie. I can't imagine a better example of society-to-society -society relations, in this instance facilitated by a private uh, actor, but with a clearly public purpose, than the Rhodes Scholarships and then, of course, the Fulbright Scholarships. We've already heard <clears throat> from Adam Roberts, uh, the, the Fulbrights, there have been over 300,000 scholars uh, since 1948 from 155 countries. 300,000 Fulbright scholars, these are people uh, who became uh, 
who had their fundamental understanding of the world radically changed uh, by their experiences. Uh, and as Cecil Rhodes said, those educational ties and the human ties that go with them are a very deep part of an interconnected society that can be a much more productive uh, society. I indeed uh, had the great privilege uh, to be one of those scholars, not a Fulbright nor a Rhodes, but a Sachs scholar. Uh, and the Sachs scholarship was given in memory of a Rhodes scholar who died, and in his memory, a, a scholar from Princeton every year can come to Oxford uh, for two years. Uh, I was enormously privileged to be here, and I have many lovely memories. Indeed, the last time I was in this building, I was attired also in black and white, but a little different. Uh, I wore my subfusk, a little bit rebellious even then. They didn't say anything in the regulations about how long your black skirt had to be. I have a very cherished picture of my coming out having finished my examinations with a grin that is as wide as uh, the high street uh, and the proctor looking at the length of my skirt. So I'm very pleased uh, to be back here and I'm extremely uh, privileged and grateful to be able to give uh, this lecture. I think Oxford in J. William Fulbright's time uh, was the educational hub of a territorial empire. Uh, Oxford today, in an era in which knowledge and ideas and innovation are far more important uh, than territory uh, to the nature of power in the world. Today, in the 21st century, Oxford is increasingly a global crossroads of ideas. And in the turn from states, a world of states, to a world of governments and societies, uh, may Fulbright's legacy here and around the world burn ever brighter. Thank you. Before I add my own um, vote of thanks, let me just make a couple of points. Um, first of a practical kind, um, we have a reception in the North Schools just straight over to which you are all invited, so please feel free to move from this side to that side. Um, those of you who are going on to uh, dinner in Pembroke College, it takes about 10 minutes to get from here to Pembroke, depending how fast uh, you walk. So uh, we probably need to leave here sometime soon after uh, 7 o'clock to get up to there. Um, the second point I just wanted to say a little bit about was about the, the Fulbright Initiative. This was the inaugural lecture. It took place here in Oxford. In subsequent years, um, it will take place in Oxford, but also in Edinburgh and in London. The other elements of the initiative are a visiting fellowship program, and that began uh, this year with the visit that's just finished of Professor Joseph Nye, the visit to come of Professor Deborah Larson. Uh, the third element is the construction of a suite of rooms in the new building in Pembroke College for the Fulbright visitors. Um, and the last element, the element that we seek to look for development and fundraising for, is a more permanent post in international relations uh, named after Senator Fulbright. So that's the initiative. But let me wind this part of the program up by saying that when we were thinking about this lecture and what a Fulbright lecture might cover, we thought of some of the obvious things. We thought of theory and practice. We thought of values and the role of values in international relations. We hadn't actually quite, at least I hadn't 
quite focused maybe directly enough on the theme of government society and society society and it's been tremendous to have as part of this inaugural lecture the importance of that theme not just government 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 society 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 which fits I think purpose exactly into uh, the broad sort of theme that we hope future lecturers will take forward so let me ask you once again to join me in thanking Professor Anne-Marie Slaughter for giving us this lecture tonight <laughs>